grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Good morning. Perhaps I should say, top of the day to you. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Friends, it is a privilege, pleasure, and joy for me to be with you and for you to be with me, I hope, but especially for us to be together with the Lord as we have come to worship, to sing, to pray, to listen, to hear, to be filled with the presence and power of the living God. Let us remember these things then as we are called to worship. And so let us read responsively from the ninth psalm. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will tell of all your wonderful deeds. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for judgment. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Friends, let us worship God.
Friends, are you thirsty for grace? Are you hungry for mercy? God is calling to you, come and eat the living bread and drink the living water and you will never hunger or thirst again. Let's go to God in confession. Your grace, O God, has appeared for the salvation of all, calling us to renounce false gods, fruitless pathways, and joyless fear. In the midst of our sin, Christ has appeared as a sign of our hope, redeeming us and calling us to be a people eager to do your will. We confess our vain self-worship and our neglect of your children. Forgive us and empower us to live upright and godly lives in the world. Make us zealous for good deeds in response to your wonderful deed in Jesus Christ. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Listen, God has given you a feast today. It's all laid out for the taking. In the name of Jesus Christ, I declare to you, we are forgiven. Thanks be to God. May the peace of Christ be with you. As we prepare to greet one another, we would remind our fifth grade and younger that our Sunday school leaders are waiting to take you to your class in the back. And also, if any youth are here, our youth are meeting in the youth room, even as we speak. So let's turn and greet one another now. Allow me to share with you for just a few moments about some of the things happening in the larger life of the church that all flow out of our worship and fellowship together. I would remind you that next Sunday following this worship service, we'll have a lunch and seminar for those of you who are interested in learning more about the church and perhaps joining with the church as full-fledged members. If you're not yet signed up for that, shoot us an email this week or grab Jan or me following the service and we'd love to have you come and be with us. On Saturday, May 6th, we are offering a scripture memorization class uh, taught by our own Susan Hohen. We have learned over 
over the centuries that one of the ways to keep the word of the Lord close to your heart is to memorize it in your mind. And so we offer this to you as one of the spiritual disciplines that you might find useful. The following day on Sunday, May 7th, we'll have another chat with Jack. This is your opportunity to visit with me and with each other about some of the things you are hearing in our sermons as we begin uh, today a new series of messages. You don't need to reserve your spot for that. Simply hang around following this service. Our women's spring luncheon is coming up on May 10th. Jan Cook's going to be our guest speaker, and I, for one, am looking forward to learning much more about her. She's a woman of mystery. And, and so I'm looking forward to hearing more about you, Jan. At any rate, that's the women's luncheon on May 10th. There is a sign-up table out on the patio. We'd encourage you to visit there. We'd also encourage you to visit another table on the patio where you are invited to sign Valentine's Day cards. Now, I know you think Valentine's Day is over, but it's still to come in Brazil where we have been involved with mission and ministry to street children for about 30 years. So we'd encourage you to take just a moment of your time stop by and sign one of those Valentine's cards. And then I need to ask you all a question uh, and get your advice on this. We're having a Shamrocks and Blessings event after this service. All of you know about that. We're going to be celebrating many things in Irish culture as we get ready to send our choir off to Ireland as they minister to folks over there by participating in worship services and presenting several different concerts. And uh, this after, you're welcome to come. If you haven't bought a ticket yet, you don't have to worry about that. Just come and hand us your wallet at the door and everything will be good. Um, but, but there are a couple of us who have been asked to wear hats, and I'm not sure that I, that, I, that I should do this, and so I need your opinion about this, okay? So, should I... Will somebody please vote no? At any rate, I hope we'll see you all there. <laughs> Worshiping God should be fun. It also should be meaningful. And part of the meaning that we derive from worship is when God calls us to offer ourselves to Him. We signify that offering as we present to God our tithes and offerings. And so in this next wonderful musical offering, the ushers will come and wait upon you as you present your tithes and offerings to the living God. Keep out the devil. 
be seated. Friends, as we come to a time of prayer, be reminded that there is no need to travel any further than the grace of your longing to be with God, to be able to come into God's presence. Let's go to God together in prayer. Oh, you who are at home deep in our hearts, enable us to join you deep in our hearts. Lord, come to us, our door is open. There is quiet at the dawning of the day, a quiet that awaits our awakening souls that births all that you intend, and where you, Savior, are Lord of all the garden of the earth. And you have called us, Lord, to be your servants, to ventures of which we cannot see the ending, by paths as yet untrodden and through dangers unknown. Give us faith, God, to go out with good courage, not knowing where we go, but only that your hand is leading us and your love is supporting us. Jolt us with your spirit of justice and love. Surprise us so that when we sit in silence, we are convicted and committed not to be in silence as those who brutally oppress are allowed to grasp and wield their power. Let your voice become a thunder in our convictions when the humble remain humiliated, when the hungry are empty and the rich full. And God, make good your word and begin with us even as we cower and even as we hesitate, and even as we say, is it I, Lord? 
And so open our hearts and unblock our ears to hear the voices of the poor and their struggle. And send us away empty, craving for your promises to come true in Jesus. Open our hearts, dear God, to reach out tirelessly again and again to those who cannot help themselves until hope is restored to them. And we, emboldened by your spirit, unafraid to wrestle with brutes and bullies and despair and hopelessness, we allow our loving to become more like yours. Lord, we don't want to be spectators, passengers on a tour bus looking out upon the real world, an audience to poverty and want and hopelessness. Involve us, call us, implicate us, commit us, Lord, help us to step off of the bus and let our hearts break for what breaks your heart and dive into the deep end of your fierce and formidable plans, not just for us, but for all people. Plans to prosper and not to harm. Plans to give all hope and a future. The future belongs to you and you hold it in your hands. And that's why we are confident when we lift our voices together, praying the prayer your Son taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
A reading from the Gospel according to Matthew. Now when Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and proclaim his message in their cities. When John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the death are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me. And now a reading from the Gospel according to Luke. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee. And a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of the Lord. When all is said and done, what would you say was Jesus' primary mission here on earth? Maybe you've thought about that question long and hard over the years. Maybe this is the first time you've ever had it asked of you in this way. Regardless, it is a very, very important question. This precious Lord of whom we ask that he would take our hands, what did he do here? Why did he come? What was he all about? 
really. There are, admittedly, many ways, good ways, to answer that question. Many folks might think first of this idea that Jesus came to die as payment, restitution, if you will, for our sin. That's not a wrong thought. Others might say that Jesus came in order to die and then be resurrected as proof of God's power over death and as a sign of hope for our own resurrections. Some might say it this way. They would say that Jesus came to lead the way into heaven. Others might say that Jesus came to heal people or that Jesus came in order to confront corrupt religious leaders and corrupt religious practice of his day. Others might say that Jesus came in order to teach us how to live or to simply embody God's love for us. All of those are biblically defensible answers. They're good answers, and I'm sure there are many other answers, but let me press us a bit further. What was Jesus' primary mission here on earth? Now, I do not propose to answer that question in its entirety in one sermon, but still we should ask that question. All of those things that I've just said and others that I'm sure you have thought about can be said about Jesus' work and in some sense all of them must be taken together if we are to begin to comprehend this human being whom we confess also is God who lived and moved and had his being among us for a while. One of the things that I'm most interested in about Jesus these days comes, in a sense, from the world of business and the world of commerce. I'm not necessarily so interested in what Jesus was saying or doing, but I'm interested in focusing on what Jesus expected or hoped would happen as the result of his time among us. In the business world and other parts of the world, we would say that Jesus was very focused on outcomes. Are you focused on outcomes? I'm always focused on outcomes. So are you. When I give my order to the server at a restaurant, I'm interested in a particular outcome. I want my hamburger brought to me, cooked just past medium and just before medium well. That's the outcome I want. We all want outcomes, we, we, want, we want results, we want something to happen or not to happen. What did Jesus want to happen or not to happen? Some would say that Jesus came so that he could get us to heaven. I don't disagree with that. I'm interested in going to heaven later. Here's a question, though. When did heaven start? When does it start? Jesus always talked about heaven 
as if it started right here, right now. We can talk about that for a long time, but let's think about what would heaven actually look like? What would heaven be like? Let's say that in maybe this afternoon, let's get through our afternoon naps, and then let's say that we all go to heaven. Is this what we're looking forward to? Are we looking forward to harps and clouds and angels and white robes and that sort of thing? It's kind of boring to me. What was heaven like? If Jesus was introducing us into heaven, what would heaven look like? I think Jesus had a very specific idea about what heaven would be like, and he spoke about it all the time, but he spoke of it in present tense, about what life is meant to be like. That's what heaven really is, right? What life is meant to be like. Let's talk about that a little bit more, and let's take a little side conversation. It's really not a side conversation at all. It's taking us back into a conversation that happened a couple of thousand years ago between Jesus and his first cousin. How many of you have at least one first cousin? I had 27 first cousins. Some of you likely had more, right? Some of them I knew better than others. Some of them I liked better than others. We know that Jesus had at least one first cousin, probably had more, but this particular first cousin was around the same age as Jesus. We doubt that they were more than a year apart in age. Certainly they knew each other, and, and they were cousins not only in, in biolo- biological senses, but they, they were cousins in a sense in what they were interested in, what they did. Both of them Both of them became preachers and teachers when they grew up. Both of them were interested in things of God. And both of them got into serious trouble. What's sometimes called good trouble with establishment leaders. The cousin, of course, is John. John the baptizer. Now, in his ministry, just like Jesus, John was thrown into prison because of the way he confronted the leaders of the time. While John was in prison, he had some of his people go and speak with Jesus, and he had them ask a question of Jesus that essentially is the same question I asked of you at the beginning of this sermon. Jesus, what are you doing here? Now, John asked it in a very specific way. Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? It's really the same question. Are you the one that the people of the Jews have hoped for, dreamed about, prayed for, yearned for, for all these centuries? Are you the one who is going to do God's ultimate work here? We sense that John hoped that's who Jesus would be. There were many others who were beginning to hope and believe that that's who Jesus was. But still, John had to ask the question. And that's okay. John was a human being just like us. He wasn't really quite sure. Perhaps John did not know that Jesus had already answered his question. According to the way that Luke arranges the biographical details of Jesus' life, 
after Jesus was baptized, after Jesus was publicly proclaimed to be the Son of God, after Jesus went into the wilderness to deal with his demons, or perhaps more specifically, which we should say to deal with the demon, with Satan, and Jesus then began his public ministry, Jesus answered that question for the people about who he was, what he was doing, about his primary mission on earth. The way Jesus did it was by going to church. That's right. Jesus regularly attended the gatherings of his synagogue in his little hometown. And as was the custom in the synagogues of that day, any male Jew who was a member of the synagogue, meaning 12 years and older, any of them were invited and all of them in some sense were expected at some point in time to read from the scriptures and then to comment about the scriptures. Now at the nine o'clock service one, I had a brilliant idea. I think that we should start doing that here. I think that we should start expecting all the male members of the church 12 years and up on any given Sunday morning to read and comment on Scripture. Do you think that people will come? <laughs> I, that's kind of what the rest of them said. And of course, in order to be theologically correct, and I, I truly believe this, we should also invite all the women, <laughs> right? Would any of you women come? Uh, some of you, I see, okay, maybe we have something there. Well, that was the custom in the synagogues of that day, still is to some extent. Jesus, as just one of the members of this little synagogue, took a scroll in which were contained some of the words of the prophet Isaiah, specifically what we refer to as the 61st chapter, and he began to read and in the selection he chose from the prophet Isaiah from centuries before was a selection that answered John's question. Now, here's the way Jesus answered the question to John's disciples. He said, well, tell John what you see, that the blind receive their sight and the lame walk and the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised and the poor have good news brought to them. Sounds an awful lot like what Jesus had already read from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We need to dwell with those words for a while. What was Jesus saying? Those are the first words he chose to read. He could have chosen from the entire Old Testament, but he chose to read those words from Isaiah. He chose to quote those words again as he answered John's question before John was killed. Well, Jesus says several things. One, he says that his mission is all about people. All about people. God loved the world so much. Now, I think that God loves his whole world, right? 
Jesus loves the oceans. Jesus loves the daffodils. God loves ice cream. God loves all kinds of things in the world, but especially God loves people. Not just certain kinds of people, not just the Jews, not just religious people, not just incredibly smart and beautiful and powerful and attractive people like I am, but but God loves all kinds of people. God loves all people. Jesus' ministry, Jesus' mission was about people. And no one, no one is to be left out. Now, Jesus' mission was all about people who suffer something in their lives. Look at the list. Jesus says, the blind see, the lame walk, the diseased are healed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor receive good news, those in bondage are released, those oppressed are given freedom. That list that list of the suffering of the people, the maladies, if you will, of the people, is not what we would call an exhaustive list. It doesn't mention every single problem from which people suffer. Because if Jesus attempted to give that list, we'd still be reading from the Scriptures, wouldn't we? This is a suggestive list. It mentions some of the the most important things, some of the most widespread things, things that can lead each one of us to identify the things from which we suffer. Is there anybody here who never has suffered, who is not suffering now? Of course, if you can't think of something in your life that's not right, then talk to me. And I'll happily point out everything in your life that's not right. We don't need to have that conversation. You know what that is. Jesus was talking to all the people, all the people who suffer. His mission is to people who suffer. And not just personal things. In some sense, the beginning of the list, you know, being deaf, being blind, that sort of thing. In a sense, that's kind of a personal thing. But there's a lot of corporate suffering here, community suffering here. The poor, the captive, the oppressed. Jesus covers all suffering, all that's wrong with the world. And interestingly, he chooses to quote from Isaiah to give that list. You'll remember that Isaiah prophesied at a time when the nation of Israel was falling apart. The whole nation was suffering, not just the personal suffering that individual people would be living through as the nation was attacked, as the nation was falling apart, but the corporate suffering. The nation was falling apart. And so Isaiah looks to that time when when God deals with that suffering, how God will rectify it someday. We have to go a little bit deeper. Jesus' mission is to people, all people, people who suffer because of something that is not right. Now, how many times have you said to yourself, this is not right? You've said it perhaps not as frequently as you did 
when you were a teenager arguing with your parents. But right now you could identify, as could I, all kinds of things that are simply not right. It's not right that people go blind and can't see anymore. It's not right that people kill each other. It's not right that millions die of starvation because they never had a chance to live in a community where food was abundant. You can go on and on and on with that list. There is so much in the world that is not right, and when you think about it, it goes all the way back to the garden. The garden of Eden was the only place that was right, that was perfect as God meant for it to be. When things are right, we see, we hear, we walk. When things are right, we are not hungry, we are not oppressed, we are not imprisoned. We do not suffer from all the evil that exists in the world. Not right applies to our corporate life, our community life, doesn't it? If you simply read the newspaper, if you simply listen to the stories that your neighbors will tell, if you simply open your eyes, you will see so much in the world that is not right. And yes, we try to do something about it. We do our, our darndest sometimes to do something about it. That's what the, the writers of the Declaration of Independence in this country had in mind when they said that what we're after is life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. What a great summary of a prayer almost, a plea for making everything right. Well, Jesus identified for us what we already know about, that, that life is full of that which is not right. And from that we suffer. What was Jesus' mission then? Jesus' mission was to come to bring hope and healing and a way through the unrightness of life. And he himself led the way. Now let's think just a little bit more about what we're saying when we're saying that things are not right. You like that word right? I like the word right. I have rights. I'm always right. <laughs> I don't get to say that very much anymore. <laughs> what is being right? Let me give you a theological word that people are afraid of. It's the word righteous. <sighs> now you're in church. I've said the word righteous. That's what being right is. It's righteousness. Not being right when somebody else is wrong, but being right in the sense that you are, things are as they are meant to be by God from the very beginning. That's what righteousness is. When you and I are righteous in our actions and our thoughts, it simply means not that we're better than everybody, it simply means that we're finally doing it the way God wanted it to be done in the first place. That's righteousness. There's another word in Scripture that is closely related. In fact, they're almost identical to the word righteousness. And we're all interested in righteousness. It's the word justice. Justice. When things are just, 
that means they are right. When things are just, that means things are equal, things are fair, things are such that everyone has access to the blessings of living in the garden. That's what justice is. So when righteousness and justice are held together, we have a beautiful vision of what God intended for the world, and we have a beautiful sense of the mission that Jesus engaged to bring righteousness and justice into play. Back in 1910, the Presbyterian Church created a statement of what it believed was a summary of what the church is all about. It's a great statement. It's called the six great ends, the six purposes of the church. Those six statements, those six descriptions of what Christian life is supposed to be about are really different facets of the same jewel. And the fifth one of them says this. The fifth one says that the great ends of the church are the promotion of social righteousness. Think about that for a minute. What would life be like if everywhere around us everything was righteous? Everything was right in your own body, in your own mind, in your own thoughts, in your relationships, and then extend that out to the whole world. We live in a world where so much is not right, but the mission of the church, which is the mission of Jesus Christ, is to make things right, to make things just to make things the way that God meant them to be. I would propose to you that it is an indispensable way of understanding Jesus' mission in the world by thinking about Jesus' mission to bring righteousness to us, to point up where we are not righteous, to, poo, to lead us in finding ways to become righteous, to encourage us and strengthen us to learn ways to be just in the world. You cannot talk about Jesus without talking about righteousness and justice. Now let's go back to my original question. What was Jesus' primary mission? Well, it was not only about getting us to heaven after we die. It was not only about easing our fear of death. It was not only about paying for our sin, but it was also about calling us to be righteous and to institute God's justice in the world and to reclaim the whole world, as it were, for God's purposes. I find it very interesting that when Jesus answered John's question and that when Jesus began his public ministry and chose one particular passage from which to preach, that he did not talk about how good things would be after we die. He didn't say a word about it. He did talk about how good things are meant to be here and now among all of God's people and within all of God's people. Yes, later Jesus would talk about what would come. 
but mostly he wanted to talk about what needs to be now. Think about Jesus' ministry. I know the end of the story is about dying and resurrection to eternal life. But the rest of the story about Jesus is about how he confronted injustice and unrighteousness in the world and everything that he said and did. He healed the outcast lepers. He confronted power-hungry Romans. He befriended oppressed women. He engaged with disregarded children. He confronted greedy tax collectors. He confronted arrogant priests. He confronted the despairing masses who wanted someone else just to come and solve their problems. He was with people all the time in their sins, in spite of their sins, and helping them transcend their sins. He was with the people who were self-centered enough to walk by a suffering man and do nothing about it. Think of all the things that you know that Jesus said and did, and I'll guarantee you the vast majority are about restoring the goodness of God's creation in us and in all of us in our society, restoring the righteousness, the justice that God wants to exist. Everything Jesus said and did before he died and after he rose was about making this world all over again and making it so much like the heaven to which we look forward that we might not even know the difference when we leave here and go there. If you say that you believe in the resurrection, if you believe that, to quote a famous preacher, it's not over, <laughs> then you must also believe that Jesus is leading us into a life of righteousness, of justice, of wholeness and peace in the here and now. We'll be talking more about this because Jesus also invited us to be part of his mission, but that's for another Sunday. Amen. So we have heard the word preached and sang our songs and our prayers, so let's stand together and affirm our faith together. Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess the glory of God. Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen.
What outcome do you expect as you follow Jesus? Do you want to get to heaven? Sure. Do you want to live through death into eternal life? Sure. But some of us have a long time to live before that. What are we going to do until then? Maybe what we're going to do is do what Jesus did and start living with that vision of heaven right here, right now. Not only for us, because if it's only for us, it's not Jesus' vision. It's a vision for all of God's children to experience beginning here and now the blessings of heaven, heaven on earth, as God made it to be from the very beginning. You have work to do. So do I. Let's go take a nap after we go eat some Irish food, and then let's get on with the business, shall we? May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you this day and forevermore. Amen.